Thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. We trust that today's broadcast will be a blessing to you and your family and friends, and you'll receive edification, exhortation, and instruction from the Word of God. As the first and primary purpose for the writing of the Word of God was for doctrine and not for feeling or for experience, we'll spend a good deal of time in these broadcasts dealing with the doctrinal content of the subject matter. Our subject matter this week is a continuation of our discussion on the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We are discussing in particular Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 6, two of the commonly misapplied verses on the baptism. And to misapply these verses, Satan has raised up two cults in America to stop the believer from being established in a sound doctrine. One must never forget that the primary purpose for the writing of the Scripture was for doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read, All Scripture is given the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine then for approved correction, instruction, righteousness. But the primary purpose is plainly sound doctrine. That is, we should establish, first of all, what the Scriptures say, what they mean when they say what they say, what they teach in connection with the rest of the Scripture, and what the rest of the Scripture has to say about the things that they teach. Any Bible study, therefore, that does not bring to light upon the Scripture all the other verses of Scripture that have bearing upon it is a shallow, insufficient teaching will bear nothing but a harvest of grief and sorrow and poor crops. So in this broadcast, we take a great deal of time to go into the scriptural matters and give you what the scriptures say about the scriptures and not merely what they are presumed to teach. Now, last week we spent a good bit of time discussing the baptism of the Holy Ghost as found in, Pen- in uh, Pentecost and in Acts chapter 2. Today we'll study the two other salient passages, Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 6 because these are places where the uh, various cults in America are leading the child of God astray. As we've said before in previous broadcasts, the most dangerous part of the Christian's life is right after he gets saved and wants to yield to the leadership and lordship of the Holy Spirit. At this point, two nationwide cults raise their heads. Realize, of course, if you're in the Utah area or the Wyoming or Montana area, you're caught in the satanic cult out there that originated back in the 1900s, it's so vicious, you'll probably never recover yourself from it. Uh, the call of this cult of such dimension, such size, that it is almost a state religion in Utah and Wyoming and Montana and such areas. And this religion that is almost a state organization has such a hold upon finances and businessmen, they dare not believe the Bible lest they lose their business or their income. We find much the same thing in various parts of Pennsylvania and New York, where the pagan African religion of the Latins is so fiercely enforced in town hall and the councils that very few people can reject their superstitions in order to trust the truth because it's going to cost them something. Now, two of the great nationwide cults in the South that uh, were raised up by Satan to quote Scripture, and you know the devil does quote Scripture, see Luke chapter 4. The first group was a group raised up to convince the believer that he didn't have the Holy Spirit unless he was baptized in water according to Acts 2.38. We call these people water dogs down south, and they're called Camelites in various parts of the country. You can always spot them because they never baptize anybody. They baptize. They seem to have never learned how to say the word baptism, and they always pronounce it baptism for some peculiar reason. Now, the water dog always tries to make the new believer think that he's not really been saved unless he's baptized according to Acts 2.38. And once this fatal mistake has been followed, he is then informed that he can't know he's saved whether he's baptized according to Acts 2.38 or not, which is a very uh, 
scully that's quick to pull into somebody. What a, what a thing to pull into somebody. Tell him, brother, you've been baptized wrong. You've got to be baptized according to Acts 238. When the man does it, then tell him you still don't know where you're going. <laughs> well, what was the idea of making the stupid mistake in the first place if it didn't remedy the problem? I said to a water dog one time, in typical water dog, you don't even tell them where they smile, you know. I said, how long have you been preaching? He said, 22 years. I said, what have you been telling these people? He said, I've been telling them they shall know the truth, and the truth shall make them free. You know, they all have the same diction, pronunciation, the same spirit behind the mouth. And I said, well, what do you tell them? He said, I tell them to repent and believe and confess and be baptized. I said to him, I said, if you repented, he said, yes. I said, you confessed? He said, yes. I said, you believe? He said, yes. I said, you've been baptized? He said, yes. I said, you say? He said, I hope so. Now, isn't that a flip? Did you, did you ever analyze what I just said? Here was a man who'd been telling people how to get saved for 22 years and didn't know he was saved himself. Now, isn't that something? Here was a man giving people a four-point outline on how to get to heaven, and after following it himself, he don't even know where he's going. Now, ain't that something, brother? Now, can you imagine? I know this is hard, and it's going to cause you to stretch your imagination. You hardly imagine this. Can you imagine an American with a high school education putting money in a plate to support a man like that? Now, can you imagine that? Here's a man who doesn't know where he's going for 22 years, trying to tell unsaved people how to know where they're going for 22 years, and after doing what he told them to do, he don't know himself. Can you imagine paying that man a salary? For what? I mean, would you pay a dentist for breaking in your rear window in your car? Would you pay a plumber for coming over and carrying out all your light sockets in your house? People are strange. All right, the first cult that was raised up by Satan was the water dog cult, the splashing bathtub cult, who take Mark 16 out of the context and 1 Peter 3.21 piecemeal quoted, and then misapply Ephesians 4 and Romans 6. The second cult raised up by Satan was raised up to convince the new convert that if he didn't talk in tongues, he didn't have the Holy Ghost. Now, both these uh, heretical satanic groups have their nesting in Acts chapter 2. And if you've been with us in these broadcasts the past three months, you've noticed how thorough the exposition of Acts chapter 2 has been. We've called your attention time after time. Number one, there were no Christians present. Number two, every convert was an Old Testament Jew or a proselyte to Judaism. Everybody present is a bearded, Sabbath-observing, temple-worshipping, circumcised, pork-abstaining Jew under the law. Nobody has been given the gospel, the grace of God yet. The people speaking know nothing about the body of Jesus Christ, and nobody in the chapter asks what to do to get saved. And the converts do not speak with tongues, and the apostles preaching were not baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Therefore, it is mischievous madness for the godless, depraved blasphemer who stands in the pulpit to teach that baloney is a plan of salvation, and all he's doing is damning his congregation. The two cults raised up by Satan to destroy the body of Christ lay, first of all, the emphasis on the water in Acts 2.38. And the second group lays the emphasis on the tongues in Acts 2, verse 1 to 5. The best way to damn the unsaved man and destroy the Christian is bogging down in Acts 2, hubcap high to a Ferris wheel, and leaving there spinning his wheels so he never understands Ephesians, Colossians, and Galatians. And woe be to the rascal that takes you back to Acts chapter 2 when he should have taken you to Acts 15. 
And woe be to the dirty reprobate who bogged you down on Acts 19, 1 to 5, when he should have grounded you in Galatians 4 to 6. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, we read there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Some argue there are at least two baptisms, water and the Spirit, and which is it? In the mind of God, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Spirit baptism is the true baptism. After all, although water baptism is a figure of your salvation, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, it is never said to be your salvation. Now, the place for the candle at a water dog misleads thousands of Southerners is by pointing out that the word baptism was connected one time with being saved in Mark 16 and one time with being saved in 1 Peter 3.21. What he failed to point out to you was in 1 Peter 3.21, the saved was being saved from a flood. And what he failed to point out to you further was, even though the word baptism is connected with the word saved in Mark 16.16, 16, the word baptism is never connected with eternal life Regeneration, justification, redemption, or the new birth. Now, the lying water dog will immediately say, when you say the water is never connected with the new birth, water baptism, will run you to John chapter 3, 6, and the old reprobate will try to convince you that the word water in John 3 is a reference to water baptism. But this is what we call a water complex. It's H2O mania which simply means that the water dog, every time he sees the word baptism, he thinks water, and every time he finds the water, he thinks baptism. They have a word for this type of reasoning in the insane asylums. Now, notice in John chapter 3, verse 3 to 8, the word baptism doesn't occur anywhere in the context. Notice in Romans 6 and Ephesians 5, the word water doesn't occur anywhere in the context. But this is no problem for the water dog. In John 3, where it says water, he simply adds the word baptism, and where it says baptism in Romans 6, he simply adds water. And this is the galloping gourmet who cooks up the cookbook of death, hell, and damnation and gets his converts from a lake of water into a lake of fire. And it goes on all over this country. There isn't a mention of water within five chapters of Ephesians 4 in any direction. And why anybody would think that the one baptism of Ephesians 4 was water is absolutely beyond the comprehension of a sane man. The term water, the word water, is not found within five chapters of Romans chapter 6 in any direction. And why a man would think that Romans chapter 6 was water baptism is past finding out unless you're in a shrink's office lying on the couch. And yet this madness goes on over FM and AM stations in Radio America every day. Every day of the week, there's some confounded idiot standing up there trying to convince you that the baptism of Ephesians 4 and Romans 6 is water when you couldn't find water within 15 pages of the passage with a flashlight. A text without a context, a pretext. Now, once you decide and get the truth of the matter that Ephesians 4 is not water baptism, you must deal with the second cult. For the second cult will immediately pop up, I mean, anything to drag you back into Acts 2, and tell you, well, if that's Holy Spirit baptism, then you don't have Holy Spirit baptism unless you talk in tongues, and away we go again, Daddy. Now, that's what's going on in this country. In this country today, out of the guise and pretense of preaching the gospel and studying the Bible, there is no gospel being preached and no Bible is being studied. 
What is going on is these rascals who splash around the pool have made a water baptism out of Ephesians 4 and Romans 6 to damn their souls, and the charismatics have come along and dragged both the pastors back in Acts 2 to damn their souls, and there isn't one man in Acts 2.38 who was ever saved the way any man listening to my voice was saved. And if you were saved according to Acts 2.38, son, you're just good in hell with the door shut. And that's why the people who follow Acts 2.38 always doubt their salvation. Now, the proof is in the pudding. If you want to doubt your salvation on the day you die, just obey Acts 2.38, and you'll never know whether you're standing right side up, upside down the rest of your life. Because the satanic cults that perverted the Word of God led you into that mess convinced you either, one, that you didn't have the Holy Ghost unless you'd been to the bathtub, or number two, you didn't have the Holy Ghost unless you blibber-blabbered like an idiot. And if you're dumb enough to follow those two false teachings, you'll never have any assurance of salvation because you'll be just like them. They don't have any assurance of eternal life as a present possession. Water baptism and ordinance to the church is only an earthly figure that the 1 Corinthians 12, 13 baptism has transpired. And if the true baptism of the Holy Ghost takes place, then Ephesians 5, 30 comes into being, which says the born-again believer is a member of God's, of Christ's body, his flesh, and his bones. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Now, you know why we Bible-believing people who have been baptized by the Holy Ghost, you know why we never worry about losing salvation? Because we knew when we got saved, the Holy Spirit put us into Jesus Christ, and we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. He's our head. We're in his body. And listen, listen, are you listening? If one of us could go to hell, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ would be mutilated again. Now, Christ suffered once, brother, and he's not going to suffer again. He has the holes in his hand and his feet, and no more holes going to go in. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us born-again people who know what the one baptism is, that when the Holy Spirit placed in Jesus Christ, we became bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, part of his body, his hands, his eyes, and his feet, and if we could go to hell, part of him would go to hell. So we have a blessed assurance that no charismatic or candlelight can ever have or ever will have. And while these poor, blind, deluded souls are going to the Word of God trying to prove that somebody can lose their salvation, they don't even know if they have it themselves. Now, isn't that pitiful? What could be more pitiful than an unsaved man arguing about eternal security? Could anything be more pitiful than that? Why, you poor unsaved religious people that teach the Bible and quote Scripture, you poor unregenerate people going to hell, trying to act like you're Christians, what in the world would you know about eternal security at all when you know nothing about regeneration? I've encountered your water to regenerate you, or your tongues as proof of your regeneration. You lost your tongues and lost your proof, and you doubted your water. Now, who are you to discuss eternal security with a sure enough Christian? Stand aside, children. You're liable to get run over into traffic. Now, we give you an outline of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are all baptized in one body. And Romans 6, 3 to 11 is the only definition of baptism of the Holy Spirit given in the Scripture. In the one act of living faith in Christ, believers are, first of all, one, born of the Holy Spirit. John 3, 3 to 8. They receive the earnest of the pledge of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 14. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit. 
Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 4.30. They are indwelt by the Holy Ghost, Romans 8.9. And they are baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Now, if those things have not happened to you, you're just an unsaved sinner trying to fool people with Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38 doesn't show up one time in the entire doctrinal discussion of the place of the born-again believer. The believer is born of the Holy Spirit, John 3, not Acts 2. He received the earnest of the Spirit as a pledge, 2 Corinthians 1.22, not Acts 2. He is sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, not Acts 2. He is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9, not Acts 2, and he is baptized to one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, not Mark 16, 16. Now, this shows you the difference between the born-again Bible-believing Christian who is in Christ and believes the Word of God, and the counterfeit cult member who is trying to put on a show and making a living, getting upon the instability of his congregation, who can never know for sure where they're going. The born-again believer has his initiation into eternal life by the birth of the Spirit. He has the pledge of it, the culmination of eternal life by receiving the earnest of the Spirit. He has the insurance of the continuance of eternal life by being sealed with the Spirit. He has the maintenance of eternal life in his soul by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he has a relation to Jesus Christ for the Holy Spirit being baptized into one body. Any other teaching is non-biblical, non-scriptural foolishness, by a devil quoting Scripture in order to damn your soul. And don't you think the devil can't quote Scripture? Folks say, well, how do we know you're not a devil quoting Scripture? Well, that's easy. Stupid. Look up the verses. You see what I mean? Don't ever take anybody's word for it. Open your Bible and check it out. You'll find where the pig in the poke is. You'll find the heretic. You'll find the cat coming out of the bag, son. You'll find out who tried to stuff him in, too. Now, you take your Bible and open it and read it, and don't you waste five minutes with a bunch of Jews at a Jewish feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 trying to get the Holy Spirit for water. You take your Bible and you read Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. You read Romans chapter 8. You read John chapter 3. You read Ephesians chapter 1. You read First Corinthians chapter 12. And then you come out as a Bible-believing Christian instead of a maniac talking fool. Now we have a definition of this baptism according to Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 11. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says we're baptized into his death. Romans 6, 4 says we're baptized into his burial. Romans 6, 5 says we're baptized into his resurrection. And Romans chapter 6, verse 8 says we're baptized into his resurrected life. Now, what could be clearer than this? Was this water? My dear friend, if water puts you in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is water. And the Bible says God is a spirit. You know what water puts you into? It puts you into water. You know what flesh puts you into? It puts you into flesh. You know what the Holy Spirit puts you into? Spirit. There isn't any way under God's heaven that water baptism could put any believer into Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the only time the two were connected was at the Jewish feast day at Pentecost at the initiation of this dispensation when the Holy Spirit put believers into Jesus Christ upon their accepting Peter's Jewish baptism. Why, Simon Peter is preaching the baptism of John the Baptist to manifest Christ Israel, the baptism for the remission of sins.
And let me tell you something. Water can no more put you into Jesus Christ than can put you into Grandpa Mountain up in the Tennessee Mountains, the Blue Ridge. When you get baptized by water, it puts you into the lake or the pool or the city water system. And if they got fluoride in the city water system to harden your bones, I guess that makes you a hard-shell Baptist. And you could no more contact the blood of Jesus Christ, the city water system, than you'd contact the blood of Jesus Christ by drinking a bottle full of arsenic poisoning. And woe be to the godless, unsaved elder, to the depraved, demoniac elder who has been turned to a reprobate mind, who cannot study the Word of God, who does not try to divide the Word of God. Woe be to you, and woe be to the blind of the blind who damns your soul by trying to make you think that water baptism is connected with eternal life in any way, shape, or form. The one baptism of Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 11, doesn't have any connection with water baptism, and so the word water appears nowhere in Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, Romans 12. Somebody is pulling your leg. And woe be to the reprobate elder who tries to make you think the word water should be stuck in the Roman 6 when it doesn't occur within six chapters of chapter 6 in either direction as far as the eye can see. Now this is what we call private interpretation. And the Bible warns the student of Scripture, and especially the student of Bible doctrine, that private, but no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation for holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Woe be to the man that tries to tell you your future by private interpretation. Woe be to the man that tries to tell you whether you're going to heaven, that's the future, or going to hell, that's the future, by privately interpreting a passage to mean what he wants it to mean when it don't say what he says it means. No prophets of the Scriptures have any private interpretation. So woe be to the blind leader of the blind that tells his blind congregation that the baptism of Ephesians 4 is water, when the term water occurs nowhere in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 6. And the word spirit occurs in the context throughout the entire book. So when we speak of private interpretation by the candlelight, we simply mean that the water dog reads anything of the Bible he wants to read into it in order to back up his system. Now, this depraved system that he has erected is the system that if a man repents, this is Luke 24, and believes, this is Mark 16, and is baptized, Acts 2.38, and believes, confesses, Romans chapter 10, that the man is saved until he loses it. That's the teaching. Now, this monstrous nonsense simply comes from refusing to believe what you read as you read it, where you read it. You'll notice Mark 16, 16 is very clear to tell you that your salvation depended upon your belief and your damnation depended upon your belief, not your baptism. Read it. You'll notice further, if you read your Bible carefully, the word baptism occurs nowhere in connection with the new birth, anywhere in either testament. The word baptism occurs nowhere in John chapter 3 at verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, 
verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. Therefore, to read the word baptism into John 3, verse 3 to 6, is to confess that you yourself are a Bible pervert and a spiritual perverter of the Word of God who is intent on the destruction of the souls of men. I'm glad I'm not in your shoes, friend. Furthermore, if you find a man reading water in the Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, in view of the fact that water is found nowhere in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, you're dealing with a private system of interpretation, a private doctrinal system erected and constructed by a heretic who's after your pocketbook and wants to get it by making you think that if you're not baptized according to his private prescription, you've been unscripturally baptized. And when you find a man reading water in the Romans 6, 1 to 4, you're dealing with a man whose purpose in preaching is to make a living. He is a bread and butter prophet who privately interprets the scripture and rests them to their own destruction and the $10 million reward for any man who can find the water within six chapters of Romans 6. It isn't there. And the word spirit occurs in almost every other chapter on both sides of that chapter and in that chapter. The one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, therefore, is the Holy Spirit putting the believer into Jesus Christ. The believer is baptized in his death, so Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. The believer is baptized into his burial, so he's completely identified with his dead body. He is baptized in his resurrection, coming up from the dead to walk in newness of life, entering his new body, and he is baptized to Christ's resurrected life, living with him, living with Christ in his present body. The experience, therefore, of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which has nothing to do with water, implies a complete identification with the Savior. And although you find the water mentioned the passage, the water mentioned first Corinthians twelve thirteen says, We've been all made to drink into one what? Water? No. Drink, brother, not get immersed in. Drink. Drink what? The bathtub, the city water, the baptismal fount. Drink, friend. Drink what? Drink into one spirit. So even though water is implied by the drink, the water occurs nowhere in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 16. Therefore, you make it a habit of life the rest of your life to note when a man reads water in the 1 Corinthians 12, or water in the Romans 6, or water in Ephesians 4, that man is a Bible-rejecting spiritual pervert, and this can be proved in court by the fact that he puts words into the verses and chapters that are not only not there, but they're not found within six chapters of the chapter in either direction. This is not gospel preaching or a gospel meeting or Bible teaching. This is out-and-out out spiritual perversion. And be sure your sin will find you out. All right, next week we will talk about the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's an obvious difference between the work of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about this in our next two lessons on pneumatology. 
the dealing with the fruit and gifts of the Holy Ghost. Until then, may the Lord bless you and good day.